Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open to Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is our text this morning. Now those of you who have been members here for any time at all will be familiar with our text today because I suspect that your pastor quotes from this text more than any other in the New Testament. Uh, It's sometimes called the epistle of joy. Philippians, because of Paul's liberal use of that word joy and other words associated with joy throughout its four chapters. Um, It is sometimes called the antidote for anxiety. And that's why I think it's so precious to many of us living in this hectic world. We cling to it tightly. We quote it. We read it often. But our text today here in chapter 2 is incredibly rich in doctrine related to Christmas, the incarnation of Christ. Today, after all, Christmas Day and certainly We want to think and meditate on the truth that God became man. Last Sunday morning, we read from John chapter 3, and we discussed the concept of Christ's condescension. Remember that his condescension means that he left a higher rank and place of privilege to descend to a lower and less dignified rank. And that's certainly what happened. He went from heaven to earth. And we noted several truths about the condescension of Christ. First of all, um, the second person of the Trinity shares all the attributes of God the Father and God the Spirit, which implies that the Savior pre-existed His incarnation, that He was there when all the things were created. In fact, the Scripture says it was through Him that all things were created that have been created. And so His place was in heaven with the Father. But He condescended to come to earth in at least three ways we saw. Number one was His place. He left the prerogatives and the glories of heaven to come to earth. He, he condescended in title. Instead of being called son of God or even God, uh, the second person, he took on the title of son of man. He identified with humanity in such a way. And of course, he condescended in service. Though he was attended to all the time by myriads of angels, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to serve rather than be served. So in our text today, Paul picks up another important aspect of Christ's condescension, and that is his humiliation. And when we speak of the humiliation of Christ, uh, we need to be specific. When I think of humiliation, I think of times where I had cultural faux pas, where where I ate the bread that was intended to feed the fish uh, in Florida on vacation when I was a child. Um, when when I said things inappropriately or or out of place. That's not what we mean by the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ is the rejection and suffering that Jesus received and accepted in his body as a result of his condescension. And this morning, I, I want us to see three truths about the humiliation of Jesus. Number one, it was voluntary. He did it volitionally, not because anyone forced him. It was fatal. It ultimately led to his death. And most importantly, it was temporary. It was temporary. And let's, let's read about that now in Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude, Paul says to the church at Philippi, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant 
And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he, fumbled, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and reading of his word. Now Paul in this text is calling upon believers to gain the reputation of selflessness. That is, of regarding others as more important than ourselves. Of striving for unity within the church through being willing to give up our own perceived rights for the benefit and the good of others. And then to illustrate his meaning, he gives the obvious illustration of Christ and his condescension and humiliation for our benefit. In verse five, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your translation may say, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It means the exact same thing. Part of sanctification is constantly conforming our minds to that of Christ. That is adopting his attitude of life, uh, specifically as it relates to other people. In verse 6, he says, speaking of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it mean that Christ existed? That's past tense, in the form of God. That is before his incarnation. He was eternal and is eternal. And he is God. Just put an equal sign between God and Jesus. That's what it means. He shared all the attributes of the Father and the Spirit. But he said he didn't hold on to his place in glory as a thing to be grasped, which means held on to tenaciously. I always get the image of a bald eagle swooping down over a mountain stream and pulling out a trout and going back up to his nest. You've probably all seen that in super slow motion. It's a majestic thing to behold. Now those eagles are committed to holding on to that prey because it means whether or not their hatchlings are going to survive that winter in many cases. And so I am told that it has been observed that some eagles pick a fish that's too large to fly with. But rather than releasing it, realizing that they can't get in the altitude, they would rather drown than admit it. And so uh, they come crashing down. Well, Jesus did the opposite. He had everything in his clutches, but he didn't hold on to it tightly. He emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, which means he poured himself out, verse 7 says, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now this word kenosis is one that theologians have grappled with and debated and argued really for hundreds of years. What are the implications of it that Jesus emptied himself? Well, uh, no one knows for sure, which makes it a mystery. But I think sometimes in the area of theology, it's helpful to state what we know it does not mean. That helps us get a hint of what it might mean. It does not mean that Jesus emptied himself. It does not mean that there was ever a moment in his earthly existence that he ceased to be God. That would be a heresy. Jesus was always God, even though he took on a new nature, that of a man. And remember we says by doing that, he added to not took away from his glory. That is his divine nature and his human nature did not do violence one against another. They, they coexisted. I think the best way to think about Jesus' condescension as it relates uh, to taking on human flesh is that in his flesh, his glory was veiled. And I think of Moses. Remember when he went up to meet God on the mountain, 
God put him in the cleft of the rock and he saw just a little glimpse of the hinder parts of God. But even that was enough to make his face glow for days. And for the benefit of other people, he wore a veil on his face, kind of veiled the glory of God. Well, Jesus did that. When he took on human flesh, he had all of his glory. It was simply veiled by his flesh. I take that from Matthew chapter 17, the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus took his inner circle of disciples up on a mountain and he, in some supernatural way, pulled back his flesh and revealed just a little hint and a little glimpse of his glory. And when Peter saw it, he says, it's good to be here. And one day when we have our glorified bodies, I take it that we'll be able to be in the presence of the full glory of God, but not yet. And so his glory is veiled in flesh. Now, now having established what we mean by God's, uh, Christ's humiliation, that is his being willing to suffer voluntarily, uh, let us uh, get into our outline now. First thing we see from the text is that his humiliation was voluntary. Jesus was not a victim. I, I warn us often, usually around Easter time, not to think of Jesus as a victim. And the reason I often warn us that about Easter time is because that's the time when our hearts and minds usually are on the suffering of Christ, his passion and his death on the cross. And um, it's emotional to think about all the things that he went through for us. And if you just watch a movie about the suffering and the passion of Christ, um, it's a hard thing to watch because it seems as if Christ is um, a helpless victim. But we don't ever want to think of Jesus as a helpless victim. In fact, he, he warns us against doing that in John chapter 10, verse 17. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And Jesus is very intent that we don't think of him as a victim. He wants us to know that his suffering and his death um, were his initiative, and he did this for our sake. Um, verse 7 here in Philippians 2 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being the maid of likeness of men. You note the very specific wording there. He emptied himself. No one shook him and poured that glory out involuntarily. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. As I was thinking about this verse this week, I just in my mind, I had a pencil and pad, wrote down some of the events that I remembered in Jesus' life that showed his voluntary and willful humiliation. And you don't have to go very far in the Gospels. In fact, you don't even have to leave that stable where Jesus was born to see it. Remember I said last week he wasn't born into a sanitized room in a hospital somewhere. He was born in this filthy stable surrounded by animals and all that that implies. Um, his parents were not noble men and women. They were not wealthy. They were very poor. And I've heard that all my life. And what's the proof of that? Well, it's found in Luke chapter 2. We read it last night at our Christmas Eve service, the story of the man Simeon. Remember on the eighth day after Jesus' birth, his parents went to Jerusalem to the temple to have him circumcised. And part of that procedure was that every Jewish family who had a son born was to give a sacrifice but the Lord was gracious, and to poor families, he allowed them to sacrifice birds rather than larger animals because they were so expensive. And Mary and Joseph sacrificed the sacrifice of the very poor. And so he grew up into that poor home, and, 
And even after his birth, he didn't settle down surrounded by family and loved ones around the hearth. They went on the run almost immediately down to Egypt because this wicked King Herod sought his life. And then even after he came back to his hometown, he was put down and even his own siblings didn't recognize who he was. In fact, at one point they all thought he was crazy. He was tempted by Satan. It wasn't just human beings that attacked him. It was supernatural attack from Satan out in the wilderness. And in that experience, he, he was truly hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days. He became fatigued. As I read the Gospels, I'm tired just reading it. Jesus would get up oftentimes before daylight to spend time alone with the Father because he knew his schedule was packed. And from the time that the first person came to ask for a favor, it was just a snowball effect everywhere he went until thousands of people followed him and he, he just couldn't get a break. He would sometimes have to sleep in a boat in the middle of the storm. And yet he willingly did that. He humbled himself for our sake. It, it was not just the physical pain and fatigue that he went through. There was emotional pain. What's, what's more painful than being betrayed by a close friend? And it was Judas that betrayed our, our Lord. And, and not just Judas. In fact, as Jesus hung on the cross, all of his disciples, except a few women, totally abandoned him and went into hiding. And of course, the ultimate humiliation that he was nailed to a cross, held up as a public spectacle, and he literally died. Well, he did all of this voluntarily. No one took his life from him. And that leads to our second point. The humiliation of Christ was fatal. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we, didn't, we uh, need not go further to have definitive proof that Jesus was truly a man. Remember we said last week that one of the first heresies that emerged shortly after Jesus' ascension into heaven, oh, that Jesus only appeared to be a man. But the scripture says here he was truly a man because only a man can die as men die. So what happened in Jesus' birth is that the immortal took on mortality. See, Jesus not only suffered as a man, but he truly died as a man. There are those who teach the swoon theory. And some of them in Baptist seminaries, I hate to tell you. And they reject anything of the supernatural in the scripture, especially and including the resurrection of Jesus. And so they surmise that when the soldiers took Jesus down from the cross, they only thought he was dead. His pulse rate was so low, they couldn't perceive it. His breathing was so shallow, they couldn't tell it. And so they turned over his body to the men who came and put him in a borrowed tomb. And in the middle of the night, the coolness and dampness of the tomb revived him to the point where he was strong enough to move away the boulder by himself. And they teach he walked away. That's not what happened. Those Roman soldiers were experts in death and dying. They knew it when they saw it. They saw it every day. And he was dead and truly dead. And so his humiliation was fatal. But even the sort of death he died was part of his humiliation, I think. Um, the Jews knew that from their scripture that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Romans said a hearty amen to that. In fact, they reserved crucifixion for the worst kinds of criminals and their harshest enemies. 
Even the worst Roman citizen could not be sentenced to crucifixion because it was viewed as beneath the dignity of a Roman. And by the way, that death on the cross was not quick. It began, you remember, under cover of darkness with several sham and mock trials of the Lord Jesus. It led to his being struck on the face. It led to the plucking of his beard. It led to a crown of thorns being placed upon his brow. It led to a whipping and a flogging within an inch of his life. It continued with public humiliation as they stripped him naked and divided up his clothing through gambling. And that was all before the beam was placed with a thud into the earth and he was lifted up to heaven, suspended by nails in his hands and feet. A sign was placed above him that said, King of the Jews, and all of this was just another way to belittle him. Even his burial after he died was part of the humiliation. He didn't own a tomb. He was poor, and so he, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Praise God, the story does not end there. Our third and final point is that the humiliation of Christ was temporary. It was voluntary. He willingly did it. It was fatal. It led to his death, but even his death was temporary. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, for this reason God exalted him. For what reason? Because he humbled himself. Because he did exactly what the Father asked him to do. Jesus said of his relationship with the Father that I always and ever do the will of the Father. Who else could say that truthfully but Jesus? No one. He always did the will of the Father. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And he said because of that obedience, that God the Father has given him a name which is above every name. Now, I've read that passage thousands of times, and I keep waiting for Paul to say what that name is. <laughs> it's implied, not stated overtly. And I think we find the answer to that mystery in John's revelation. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 19 together. Remember that John was given the incredible privilege of being transported supernaturally into heaven and into the future to see the second advent when Jesus comes not riding the foal of a donkey, but on a white charger, a war horse. Revelation 19, 11, John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Isn't that interesting? Jesus came into Jerusalem when he was coming to be crucified on the most humble of animals, the foal of a donkey. A sign of peace. But when he comes the second time, it's on a white horse, fit for battle. And he's not coming to seek and save the lost. He's not coming to serve. He says he's coming to wage war. Verse 12 says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a what? A name. Here's the name. Here's the, 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 the reveal of that name that God the Father has exalted him with because of his obedience. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the title that God the Father has given him because he has perfectly obeyed the Father. He's done everything that he asked him to do. He condescended to be conceived in the womb of Mary by the Spirit. He was born as men are born. He suffered all of his life. He was tempted in every way we were, and he went to the cross, and he completed his mission with his literal death, a substitutionary death. And on the third day, the Father declared to all the universe that he accepted the sacrifice of the Son through his resurrection. And if you ever doubt that God the Father is pleased with God the Son, go look at the empty tomb. That is the greatest expression of his satisfaction. He walked this earth for 40 more days. He was witnessed to by hundreds of people. And he ascended in their presence from the Mount of Olives. And one day he's coming again for his church. And one day he will rule and reign forever. And Paul says when that happens, every knee will bow. And do you know how many every is? Every. <laughs> and it's less you think Paul is... Uh, using hyperbole here. He's not. He wants us to know that. So he uses three expressions of completeness. He says, every knee will bow of things in heaven. That's the angelic realm. Of things on earth. That's the human realm. And things under the earth. That's the demonic realm. Every sphere of existence will give glory to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my question to you, dear friend, is have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus? Because you will. You will either do it in this life where you recognize His sovereignty and your need of forgiveness and you'll call upon His name and you'll be saved and you'll be granted forgiveness and you'll spend eternity with Him in heaven. Or when you stand before Him to be judged, and you will, and your name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, You'll be forced to your knees and you will have to declare He is the Lord. But unfortunately, it will be everlasting too late. The Bible says you will be cast in the lake of fire which was prepared for Satan and his demons. And so my heartfelt plea to you today is call upon the Lord before it's too late. Call upon Him in this life. Recognize your sinfulness and His holiness. Receive this Christmas the gift that he offers you, which is himself, which is his substitutionary atonement. His offer of forgiveness stands for you. If you're lost here today, call upon the Lord and be saved. But I think there's a word of application here for believers as well. In fact, Paul was writing this passage in Philippians 2 as a very practical application to some doctrine he'd been teaching. And the doctrine was that Christians should submit to one another. That we should put the other person first. That we shouldn't cling tenacious to our own rights and privileges and titles. That there's no job in the church beneath us. 
He said, oh, let me illustrate this. Jesus, if anyone had rights and privileges, the second person of the Trinity did, right? And yet he didn't hold on to that place. He didn't look down his nose at people. He voluntarily and willingly laid aside the regal robes of heaven and became a little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He lived among common people. He served them every day of his life to the point of exhaustion. He says, we ought to do that too. It's a call to humility. It's a call to service. It's a call to generosity. And I'm always about an eighth of an inch away from cynicism when it comes to materialism around Christmas. But there's one redeeming thing, I think, about all of the things that Christmas has become. And that is it reminds us we ought to be generous. That we ought to give rather than get. As, as Paul quoted, it's better to give than receive, right? Jesus shows us that with his life. And I think, like Jesus, we ought to live our lives even amidst suffering with a great sense of anticipation. See, Jesus' body was not fundamentally different than ours. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he felt pain. He felt emotional pain. But the book of Hebrews says he was able to go through all the things he went through for the joy set before him. He knew that it was temporary and that on the other side of it was exaltation and glory. But he also knew that on the other side of his suffering was our salvation. See, he wasn't suffering for kicks. He wasn't suffering just to set a moral example for us. He was suffering and dying so that we wouldn't have to receive the just deserts of our own sin. He died in our place. In fact, he said of himself, no greater love is any man than he lays down his life for his friends. I hope you're living with a great sense of anticipation. I think the older we get, two things happen if we know the Lord. Number one, um, our priorities tend to change. What's important to us tends to change. We began to live with a greater sense of anticipation of heaven when a lot of our friends are already there. And I know that many of you have suffered this year, and some of you are in the middle of it. You say, well, Pastor... Jesus' suffering was voluntary. I didn't ask for this cancer. I didn't ask to be laid off. I didn't ask for my children to betray me. No, I know you didn't. But this is God's will because He's sovereign and nothing happens that He doesn't allow or cause. And He says that all things are working together for good for those that know Him. You say, Pastor, um, Christ's suffering was fatal. I, I hope my suffering's not fatal. Well, I do too. In fact, I pray that. Many people in our church are very sick. Doctors are doing all they can, and we're praying that the Lord would spare them. And some He has, and some He's chosen not to. But look, let's just be reminded, we're all going to die. We don't know when. We better be ready. This life is fatal. It ends in death for all of us. 
See, the most important part of our suffering is not whether it was voluntary or not. It's not whether or not it leads to our death. It's the acknowledgement and the understanding that all suffering for believers is just like all suffering for Jesus. It is ultimately temporary. And that is the hope that, that I bring to the hospitals when I go visit. I don't have any ability to heal. There's many a day I wish I could walk up and down the aisles healing people. I don't have that. Um, I pray with people. I weep with people. As I did last night. Two people on their deathbed after church. But I can look them right in the eye no matter what they're going through. I say, if you know the Lord, what you're going through is temporary. How do I know that? Because of what John wrote. We, we read about what John wrote in Matthew, uh, Revelation 19. Just two chapters later is Revelation 21. And I stood in the, in the snow Thursday morning at a graveside as Mr. Flick read this about one of the men in his Sunday school class at his graveside. John was told to write down what he saw and he, he did and, and what he heard. And what he heard is that one day there will be no more tears. That God has promised to wipe away all tears and there's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more suffering. And we might think, well, that's just pie in the sky. God put His signet ring and His solemn word on it and said, write this down, John, because these words are faithful and true. And Christian, no matter what you're going through or what you'll go through in 2023, nothing's going to happen that God doesn't allow a cause. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. And no matter how hard it gets, we can always rest assured of God's promise that it is temporary. And one day in that right soon, He's going to make all things new again. Let's pray. Thank Him for that. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to the end of a new year, our minds, our own, our brothers and sisters who have suffered greatly in the last year. Some of this room. And for some, you chose to heal and restore. And, and Lord, we're thankful for that. And, and we pray those of us who have been restored to health would pledge to use every moment that you've given us for your glory. And for many, Lord, you, you've allowed to suffer a long time. And there seems no end in sight. For some, they're, they're suffering like Christ was fatal. It ended in their death. But Lord, we have the example of Jesus who not only suffered, He accepted that suffering voluntarily on our behalf. And so Father, help us look to Him. Help us to hold loosely this life and the things of it. Help us to be willing to put others ahead of ourselves. Help us, Father, to live in a sense of anticipation, not to invest so heavily in the few years here, but to lay up treasure in heaven. Help us speak a word of encouragement to one another in their time of grief and need. Help us, Father, to hold one another up, encourage one another, and bear one another's burdens in the year ahead. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that this life, though it is hard, temporary and there is heaven to gain and hell to avoid 
And Lord, I pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice who knows you not, with through your kindness and mercy demonstrated at Christmas, would you draw them into saving faith? We'll rejoice as the angels in heaven do for even one who repents. We give you glory and praise for all these things and more. We lift them in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.